Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. All of us who study the American Civil War are aware of the enormous cost in human lives, but we don't always stop to think about the ripple effects. In the Confederacy, some 100,000 soldiers' wives became widows during the war. Their story is one of grief and loss, first and foremost, but it's also one of unexpected political dimensions. No one else living in the South had sacrificed more for the Confederacy than its widows, so how they acted and what they said about the cause mattered a lot. Professor Angela Esco-Elder is the first scholar to explore this topic in detail in her new book, Love and Duty, Confederate Widows and the Emotional Politics of Loss. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from third, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University on a rainy Wednesday in August 2023. I'm here on campus. Uh, no one else is. It's there's there's not quite a hurricane, but a big storm coming tonight. So I'm here by myself, uh, but I'm not representing the university, nor will my guest represent anyone but herself. Always speaking for ourselves, as we do here, and as we've done for the past twenty years on Civil War Talk Radio. This is the first show of season number twenty. Uh, one per year since two thousand four. It is astonishing to think that uh, what seemed like an interesting side project would continue this long. And uh, it has just been a a great privilege to talk to you for all these years. Thank you to all the guests who've been on the show for all this time. Thank you to Voice America, World Talk Radio, who uh, produce the, the, the hardware, who make it happen. Thanks to Mark Gaffney, who keeps the Impediments of War website going and the Facebook page. And most of all, thanks to all of you for listening uh, for all these years. Uh, Those of you who have been uh, contributors to the show got a message from me last week because I had your emails in hand and uh, haven't responded to all of your uh, answers yet. But thank you all for for all you've brought to, to making this possible. And what better way to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Civil War Talk Radio than with crass commercialism, with new merch, we have a new t-shirt available. Uh, The 20th season version has a different image uh, in place of, uh, you can still buy the General Sherman t-shirt with the boombox, but I discovered uh, that one has the uh, captured Civil War Talk Radio written at the bottom of the image. What I've discovered uh, is that that's a problem for those of you who, like me, are suffering from Dunlop syndrome, uh, where your stomach Dunlops over your belt. Uh, Because of that, it's not always possible to read the words at the bottom of the image. So the new version proudly says Civil War Talk Radio across the top, and thus those of us who are not as svelte as we once were will be able to uh, 
proudly advertise it, you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and there's links to the new shirt and all the other new merch. Get a new mug, get a new magnet. The new image is one of Lincoln and his son Tad listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it's a new season for Civil War Talk Radio. It's also, of course, a new football season coming up. American College football is beginning. And this weekend, the opening game of my favorite team, my alma mater, University of Michigan, is coming up. But so is the opening game of my other favorite team, my employer, East Carolina University. And it's the same game. ECU is traveling to Ann Arbor uh, to play. I'm going to. I took all the uh, contributions you've sent over the years and scraped up what I could. I'm I'll be there watching the game Coach Houston and the Pirates against Coach Harbaugh and the Wolverines. I, I'm beside myself. It's I hate it when mommy and daddy fight, uh, What a, especially when one of them is favored by five touchdowns over the other. Do I wear maize and blue? Do I wear purple and gold? Well, maize and gold are almost the same shade, so no one will know. Uh, but I'm not predicting any outcome. The painful memory of the the game we don't even refer to by name at Michigan, <clears throat> App State, uh, seems like it was a week ago. I think it was 15 years now, but uh, we've learned our lesson. Never count anything in advance. We'll see what happens. Um, assuming, of course, the campus is still standing here, they are predicting a giant storm tonight. Uh, if that happens during the show, I'll keep you posted. Uh, And if it doesn't, we'll be back next week as well with more shows for the 20th season. Coming up next week, Patrick Brennan and Dylan Brennan have written a book called Gettysburg in Color. I've got a copy of Volume 1, Brandy's Station to the Peach Orchard. There's also a Volume 2, The Wheatfield to Falling Waters. And you'll, you'll have to hear about it. And eventually, you'll have to see it. It's quite a book. On the 13th, Jonathan White returns to the show, an old friend of Civil War Talk Radio, a remarkable story uh, that he's written called Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. And on the 20th, we've got D. Scott Hartwig with a book many of you are already uh, in training to practice lifting. Uh, It's called I Dread the Thought of the Place, the Battle of Antietam, and the End of the Maryland Campaign. It's as big, if not bigger, than the first volume in that series, and uh, uh, it's going to take a while to get through that one. It's something we've all waited for a long time. We'll finish up the month of September with uh, Manoa Uffelman and her edition of the Civil War Letters of Sarah Kennedy, Life Under Occupation in the Upper South. Lots of interesting stuff. Go to impedimentsofwar.org, find out what's there, click on the donation button, contribute to the Books and Bourbon Fund. Don't deduct it on your taxes, though. It's just play money. Tonight, we are talking about Confederate widows and welcome our guest, uh, Professor Angela Esco Elder. Uh, Professor Elder, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And may I just congratulate you on your 20th year. That is phenomenal. It, it's, it's a surprise to me that this started as just something to, I was filling in for the guest host for the week and then the next week and then the next 598 weeks. It just kept happening. Um, but I, I'm, yes, just delighted to be here. And thank you for being the guest to open the 20th season. I always like to pick a book that I find particularly interesting uh, to start the season. And I heard you speak about this uh, at the Civil War Institute back in June. Uh, We spoke very briefly after your talk. You had a lot of people lining up to get their books signed. Uh, But I, I was fascinated by it then and remain fascinated now that I've read it. Let me start with a question of uh, about the title of the book, Love and Duty. Do you regret the title in any way? I don't. Um, the title was something that I had a lot of conversations with my publisher about, like mm. many historians do. Uh, mm-hmm. I originally, I wanted to title it Married to the Confederacy, and I had these paired chapters based on wedding vows to have and to hold till death do us part, etc. Nice. Yes, it was nice until I added a whole new chapter on Reconstruction and 
every time I tried to make it fit, it just didn't work. And so we agreed we, we wanted and needed a new title for the manuscript. And I read through my notes, the letters, the diaries, the research, and nothing was sticking until I finally came across this poem, which is printed in the front of the book. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful poem. It came out a couple of years after the war, um, written by a woman called Heart Victories. And there are, are a number of stanzas, but one in particular focuses on love as a concept and duty, wrestling with one another until ultimately mm. love falls bleeding at duty's feet. And that ouch. describes, yes, ouch, that describes <laughs> a, a lot of the book and, and what the Confederacy was hoping for and in some ways demanding of its widows that um, there was this this sacrifice in order to make their project possible. It, it is a marvelously evocative title. The The only reason I can imagine regretting it is that when I Googled it to mm -hmm. uh, find out more about it initially, uh, the first 5,000 entries that come up are a Chinese film by the same title. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, it, and you don't get the publicity you deserve. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it is as it's, it's evocative and as is the cover image and really uh, give a, gives us an idea of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Let me ask about the, the topic generally. What brought you to such a, what, well, let me say non-cheerful topic. Yes. Yes, it is. It is a bit dark, and I'm in South Carolina, so not too far from you. And similarly, I'm in my my office on campus, and it is quiet, and there is rain hitting the windows, so it feels mm -hmm. very fitting for our conversation. Yes. <laughs> yes. So when I started graduate school, I knew I wanted to do something with the Civil War, with that moment, and mostly because I love stories. I love storytelling. I love hearing and listening stories and reading about lots of different perspectives. And so I was sitting in John Insko's Civil War mm -hmm. class, um, not Civil War, sorry, communities class. Might as well have been a Civil War class because I think half of us <laughs> were writing about the Civil War. <laughs> anyway, came to the paper topic, um, had no idea what I wanted to do and ended up at the University of Georgia archives, just reading through boxes and boxes and boxes of letters and ultimately stumbled upon Will and Rosa Deloney. And she, she was a young wife living in Athens, Georgia, 150 years, right? Before I was sitting at the same place, reading these letters and I'm reading their correspondence back and forth while Will is fighting for the Confederacy. And then all of a sudden, I'm holding a tiny slip of paper, this telegram, right, that reveals uh, that her husband has been mortally wounded. And, and that was it for me, right? I wanted mm. to know the rest of the story. And there was so much more in her story. She was nine months pregnant at the time, um, gives birth to a little girl becomes devoted to wanting to get her husband's body home to have a place to mourn him and is successful in doing that. But in a very tragic twist, that last child also dies of whooping cough. And so if you go to the cemetery today, you see these two graves, father and daughter, who, who never met each other in life, um, but, but lay beside each other in death. And so from there, I, I just wanted to know more. And so I now, one of the points you make in the introduction is that there are a lot of women in this position. I, I think I said 100,000 in the introduction. Is that roughly a, a good number? Well, hang on there, fans. We'll figure out what's going on here. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Angela Esco Elder, author of Love and Duty, Confederate Widows and the Emotional Politics of Loss. We talked in the first segment a little bit about the origin of this topic, and I left us in suspense with a rather abrupt uh, uh, exit uh, on the question of, of how many Confederate Confederate widows are we talking about? Um, Angela, what is, what, what's a rough number of how many people are in this position? Right. So that is the question, and I wish I had a concrete number. Um, we know that approximately 750,000 men North and South lose their life in this war. We Mm -hmm. estimate that approximately 28% of them were married. So that's 200,000 widows. Um, Mm. So we can, we can safely say tens of thousands across the Confederacy. Um, Part of the reason why it's so difficult to get at is because there's so many wartime marriages, so many couples who rush to the altar and that patriotic um, start to the war and during the war and the records aren't always as clean as we would like for them to be. Well, that was an interesting part of the book. You talk about wedding, marriage, and courtship uh, in the, the antebellum period. And uh, then you suggest the war does start this, uh, uh, all these very carefully uh, arranged, etiquette-bound uh, uh, rituals of, of courtship are suddenly stressed by the outbreak of war and couples deciding they're not going to wait to to do it the right way. Uh, That happened. uh, Well, well, you give evidence of that happening a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, and and it's a push from both sides. So many Mm -hmm. young soldiers, right, when they're headed off to war, they want to have someone to write home to and they want to have someone who's praying over them and thinking about them. Um, And in the same way that many young women back home like the idea of a soldier off fighting. And then some of them in the Confederacy start to run the math as the war is going on and begin to worry, how many options do I have left? Um, and I have, I have some, so some young women poke fun at this. There's one 16 year old in Charleston who says something along the lines that uh, men who she used to think were dull are suddenly charming in the wake of this. <laughs> Um, but but for some young women, obviously, it's no it's no joking matter. This is a time in which they are expected to get married. They want the lives that their mothers had, and they are watching as all of these death notifications come home. Um, and so, in some cases, yes, they that that timeline to get to the altar is shorter, and and it has unexpected consequences too. For example, so many young pregnant widows. Mm. That was striking, as you describe in chapter after chapter, the, these women. And I would say by the end of the book, I, I was I had hardened myself. I knew if you introduced an interesting uh, woman and her letters that she was about to lose her husband. And, and mm. sure enough, that's that's what happens. Uh, but so many of them are, are not just mothers already, but but pregnant again uh, mm-hmm. at the time of their husband's death. Right. And so within grief right there, even as we see today, there's a tremendous diversity in the ways that people react to that. So some women reacted and they were they were heartbroken. Right. So Mm -hmm. Evans is one of those women. She is pregnant 
um, with a son when her husband dies away fighting for the Confederacy. Her mother dies in the same week, and then she gives birth to a son who she names after her late husband, but then cannot bring herself to call him that. She calls him Winnie instead of Winston. And her mm. aunt writes her this scolding letter. Um, Winnie is an ugly name. Winnie is a girl's name. Call him after the man for which he was named. But Tivy's never, never able to do that or bring herself to do that. She refers to him as, as Winnie, not Winston, for the mm -hmm. rest of her days. Oh, they're... they're... The the sources for this book, uh, you, you, almost every everything we're talking about here comes through the letters mm -hmm. of the, the the wives to their husbands, the death notices coming to the wives, wives to those who are consoling them, uh, or, or from those consoling them afterward. Anyone writing a Civil War uh, monograph reads a lot of letters. That, that's mm -hmm. that's obviously our most personal source. But this is such an extraordinarily personal topic. These letters are more private, perhaps, than any other topic you could find. Mm. I, I, now, I tell my students uh, in historiography class, ask serious questions about the past, not how did that make you feel, which is mm. what uh, journalists ask all the time <laughs> nowadays, like it matters. Uh, but I'm going to ask that question mm. Reading these intently personal letters compared to ones about, well, our brigade moved around the left flank, mm -hmm, I can mm -hmm. read that, not blink. How did this make you feel? No, it it was tremendously heavy at times. Um, and, and speaking of becoming more hardened in the research process, when I'm going mm -hmm. to these, you know, different archives and universities and, and state archives, a lot of times the finding aids don't identify whether or not a widow is in the correspondence or in the collection. So essentially mm. what I was doing was pulling these huge family collections, especially if they had sons or young men in their 20s and 30s and just starting to read. And, and mm. I did become hardened in a sense that I'd, I'd be reading this fantastic, witty, charming, um, or, or some of them bickering or something that I thought had, had a powerful note to it. And I would be mm -hmm. thinking, well, does he die? Because if he doesn't die, I can't use this in the book. <laughs> How terrible is that? Oh. Um, so, so long story short, people always ask, is the next book Union Widows? That is an incredibly important book to do. I don't mm -hmm. think my heart can handle it. I'm going to move into something else next. <laughs> I, I, I totally get that, having read this book. The uh, you mentioned that, that widows respond in different ways. Mm. That you know, some are overcome with grief, some harden themselves and don't uh, seem to respond. But you include some very enlightening illustrations in the photograph. The mm. one photograph of a, a woman with her her child on her lap. I think it's page 101. Uh, the look on her face is really worth a thousand uh, mm. words. Uh, where, where did that photograph come from? So that was from the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress has a bunch of these that are uploaded. And I just spent time going through them. Um, and a lot of them, it looks as though the women are in mourning, but with the coloring, um, it was difficult to tell. And I was lucky mm -hmm. in this one that there was enough of a description uh, that it reads, right, unidentified woman. I was never, never able to figure out exactly who she was. Um, mm -hmm. but she, she's wearing this, this brooch with a picture of a Confederate soldier and she's holding mm -hmm. this child wearing the hat, um, and staring into the camera and mm -hmm. yes, you're, I mean, to know her story, we, we don't know, but mm -hmm. she's probably similar, um, in some way to, to the thousands of others who would have saw, seen this picture and identified with it, um, I mean, I, I expected to see more of the etiquette fall away during the Civil War. Things like wearing black. We know how expensive things were, uh, mm -hmm. how inflation affected the Confederacy, the blockades. And what I found was so many widows are writing their sisters, writing their mothers and saying, where can I get black ink? They're trying to dye the only clothing that they do have or fabric that they do have black if they found out that they are a widow to reflect that standard of mourning. Some push back, of course. There are, the, there are a handful of the Scarlet O'Hara's that show up mm. in the archives, um, to be sure. But, but the most part, 
there seems to be this aching and longing to to uphold that aspect of mourning. Well, mourning is, is just part of the whole social and cultural apparatus that surrounds death in the 19th century. And a lot of listeners have read Drew Faust's mm. book on, on you know, the, the so-called good death. Uh, can you talk about that, that concept, the good death, yeah. and how that how widows can and can't participate? Absolutely. So I, I encourage everyone, if you haven't read Drew Gilpin Faust, This Republic of Suffering, right, it will mm-hmm. change the way that you think about the Civil War, about war, about the United States. Um, and so, yes, the good death is something she talks a lot about. It's present in my book, building upon it. Absolutely. It is this idea in the antebellum era before the Civil War of how death should look, right? Very different than how many of us imagine death today. Death is something that will only happen at the end of a long life. It will happen at home, right? These aren't hospital deaths. They're happening um, in a bedroom or, or in, in a front parlor, and they are surrounded by family members of all ages. And it is peaceful. It is quiet. Um, the pastor is called. There's religious elements, but also just an opportunity for closure, right? That the person who's passing away is sharing those final words of advice. And that is what most white Southerners and Northerners expected at this time. And as we all know, the Civil War shatters the good death. There is not much mm-hmm. about a battlefield death that is good. These men are very young. It is abrupt, and a lot of times the families back home are at the mercy of the people who are fighting alongside their son or their husband to even find out if the death occurred. Um, so because I, I think this is partly why widows, some widows, do cling to mourning and the rituals of mourning. It's because they can't control anything about the death, but they can mm-hmm. control what's happening in that two and a half years afterwards that they're supposed to be in mourning. Yeah. And, and that, that was the ritual two and a half years. Mm-hmm. You note that uh, men in contrast, you know, wear a simple band of mourning, mm-hmm. like the photos of Abraham Lincoln with the, the black band mm-hmm. on his hat after Willie's death. And it's only for, for six months. Uh, there is a lot of asymmetry between men and women in mm-hmm. this era, obviously, uh, and certainly that's that's the case here. The widows are, are uniformly women. The the soldiers are men for as far as we know for the almost entire part. The uh, but one of the aspects that that makes this book really interesting is that you point out widowhood gives a sort of unexpected level of leverage, social and and political leverage to the widows that they would not have had otherwise. And that, that seems contradictory, but how talk, talk about what, mm. what standing this, this gave. Absolutely. Yes. So, so mourning and grief was always a community, uh, had communal elements to begin with. And what mm-hmm. I found is during the civil war that gets amplified. And so as the Confederacy is, arguing for its legitimacy and, and, and propping itself up, we start to see these really odd patterns when it comes to Confederate widows in which a widow who endorses the Confederacy, a widow who said, um, you know, God's will be done, a widow who gets up in front of her town and says, I wish that I was a man so that I could go on and fight that's a really powerful endorsement, right? Because here, here is someone who has sacrificed so much and is still saying the cause is worth it. On the other hand, a widow who says, no, you know, forget it. Send home my father. Send home my brother. Send home my male cousins. The cause isn't worth it. The Confederacy isn't worth it. That's a really powerful indictment against this political project that's going on. And so... I started to notice in in newspapers and um, in the letters that are coming from families and then after the war with the veterans, there is this glorification of a widow who, who quote unquote mourns well, who supports the Confederacy, who continues to uphold her husband, her late husband's name. 
Whereas a widow who does it is getting all sorts of criticism from family members, from the community. Um, and, and widows realize this too. And so some widows begin to use this position in an almost you owe me sort of way. So during the Civil War, writing to, to local officials and to the state governments and saying, my husband died. I need X, a job, food, support. You owe me. Now, I didn't see examples cited of women explicitly breaking with the Confederacy of saying this. You know, there, there's no, um, uh, there's, there's no Jane Fonda of the <laughs> the Confederacy uh, to take a, a Vietnam War mm-hmm. metaphor. But for that matter, there are very few male war opponents who who disavow the project altogether. They, they, they argue with mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis's leadership a lot. Uh, but, but, but we, did you find, were there any women? Who- uh, you know, it's one of those, I'm sure there was, but did it make it into the mm-hmm. correspondence? No, everything is so much more subtle. It's so 19th century, right? So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's refusing to allow their sons to fight or it's after the war, uh, not, engaging formally, at least in the records, in the Ladies Memorial Associations. Part of that, I think, is explained by necessity that many of these women are having to work or having to take care of children and don't have a husband anymore. And so they're focused more on the day-to-day life over the memorialization projects that are happening. Um, But you know, I think I think there's more research to be done there for sure Mm -hmm. to to unpack that even further. The, I mean, the, the subtlety of it w- does come through. You give an example of uh, one widow who is, you know, overcome with grief, and at her sister's wedding, mm-hmm. she comes down the aisle when it's her turn, and throws herself down in the pew and just sobs. And I, I have two grown daughters myself, mm-hmm. neither married at this time. Uh, but I can picture if one of them upstaged the other one at the wedding by mm-hmm. uh, by having a Confederacy legitimized fit of mourning. You can't mm-hmm. criticize her for it. Yet she's drawing all the attention. All the air goes out of the room. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you quote Mary Boykin Chesnut says, oh, yeah. this woman's had experience of war. We can't say anything bad about her. But she's ruined the day for everybody, including her sister. Mm-hmm. Um that's almost an anti-war statement. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of um, she bore her grief well or she did not, right? So there are these mm-hmm. very subtle comments that usually come from family members into letters and often kind of surrounding the widow. Some of them will directly say, you know, I thought you would have it um, pulled together by now. But <laughs> um, again, a lot of it is, is about that subtlety of so-and-so is bearing her grief well and, and so-and-so is not. You make a point in the introduction that uh, the story of women in the Civil War generally, and certainly that of widows, is uh, has much yet to be told, much more research. But in, in the first wave of feminist history to address these topics uh, tended, uh, has tended in some cases in the past to to overemphasize unity among women. And, and one of the things you've done here is, is point that out, that, that women criticizing one another, you haven't mourned well, or you're not, you're, you ought to get over this or, or you're, you're not showing it enough. Uh, is that part of a bigger project historiographically? Absolutely. I think there's so much rich scholarship that, that is making this complicated story known Within my own work, something that I was struck to read about was the complicated relationship between daughters and mm-hmm. or and wives and their mothers-in-law, right? That's such mm-hmm. a relationship fraught. I, I, I am married. I love my mother-in-law. She is wonderful. And I was a little hesitant to hand her this book <laughs> in which I gave all of these examples of feuding widows um, and mothers who never expected to outlive their adult sons and who struggled with that loss. And again, especially if the widow was pregnant, um, figuring out, okay, where, what is my role here in this very patriarchal society? Some mothers-in-law will say, I will raise that son 
of yours as my own and and some of the widows as you can imagine react quite strongly to that and are not yeah. really interested in that <laughs> kind of support <laughs> no that was very very interesting topic because uh you know, Rodney Dangerfield jokes aside, the mother-in-law as a, <laughs> a, a butt of, of cultural humor in, in the U.S. Um, it's an important relationship. And, and for the recently widowed uh, former soldier's wife, you know, this is – here's a, a woman who can support her, who mm-hmm. shares her grief. There's a lot of bonds there. But mm-hmm. there's also this, this always delicate relationship. They both are competing for the affection and now for the reputation of the – uh, of the late son slash husband. Well, I want to I want to ask some more questions about the widow in Confederate culture. We're going to take a short break. We'll come right back and talk more with our guest tonight, Angela Esco Elder, author of Love and Duty: Confederate Widows and the Emotional Politics of Loss. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio, streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Angela Esco Elder, author of Love and Duty, Confederate Widows and the Functional, I'm sorry, the Emotional <laughs> Politics of Law. So my eyesight is fading here. Um, Angela, one of the things that I did not anticipate uh, in reading this book was the discussion of the the sexy widow trope. Um, <laughs> that not the first thing I think of with these women draped in black and suffering emotionally so much, and the last thing one would think of. But you suggest that this was actually quite problematic. It was, right? So so we're talking about a time in which most young white women are supposed to go straight from father's household into husband's household and then stay there till a ripe old age. Of course, there were some young widows um, pre-Civil War, but now all of a sudden there's this war that is creating widows by the hundreds and thousands who are as young as 16 and 17 and 18 years old. And as married women, they have had sexual experience. And so soldiers' letters will make jokes about this. There are some real concerns about the promiscuous young widow. Um, you know, we, we laugh about Scarlett O'Hara today as kind of this, this stereotype. Uh, but certainly there, there were some young women who wanted to dance and flirt and be admired and were not willing or, or wanting to wait two and a half years of mourning. Well, the the point you make that these women had been married uh, 
it doesn't doesn't immediately resonate with the modern reader because uh, people today typically don't wait for marriage uh, for their first sexual experience. I, I imagine some do, but uh, it, it's not the widely expected behavior. And indeed, in the courtship letters that you quote in the first chapter, uh, they they are very emotionally passionate, but they're they're not physical at all. Uh, in contrast to today's electronic correspondence, no one is sending each other uh, drawings of eggplants, let's say, um, <laughs> uh, as as emoji people do these days. Um, they're not communicating that way at all, and you have to read between the lines that they even have a physical relationship. Mm-hmm. But with the widow, it's very clear. She's right. been married. Mm-hmm. Th- that gives her an entirely different status. It does. And and some women are more willing to flaunt that status than others. So in the correspondence of some widows, so we've talked about the good death and how mm-hmm. there are expectations. In widowhood, we talked about there's the two and a half years that they are expected to be in mourning. They're expected mm-hmm. to wear black. They're expected to devote themselves to motherhood if they have children, to devote themselves to the Confederacy. Um, and some will do that outwardly, but in their correspondence, there are some courtship letters that that sneak in. So the woman outwardly mm. is still in that two and a half years of mourning, but she's receiving um, suitors who mm-hmm. either because of her personality or her great wealth are interested in her. And one widow in particular, she's, she's receiving these letters and she writes that um, her suitor needs to make sure he disguises his handwriting and make it a woman's handwriting on the outside. <laughs> so nobody knows what she's up to. Um, wow. She that. So, so she was someone who did wait that two and a half years. She does not get married until after that point, but she certainly was entertaining offers before then. And and you say that you you show in the book this is not unique the the, the one widow you you describe who's getting letters from her, her late husband's friends consoling her mm-hmm. and she's already remarried yes uh, that was I, I obviously not the standard pattern but certainly it must have happened it it certainly did and she um, is one of my favorite stories because she has this sister so she leaves Georgia she goes to Tennessee she gets remarried she's still in this two and a half year mourning period and her sister is writing letters back complaining about the suitors she left in Georgia and there's one that was apparently so persistent, he wanted a lock of the widow's hair, um, mm. a sign, right, of 19th century affection. And right. the sister decides to play quite the joke and hands him this highly perfumed lock of hair, claiming it's the lock um, from the widow's head. But in reality, it's a piece of, of oxen fur tail hair (laughs) and so she writes in the letter about how this poor suitor pulls it out of his pocket at one point and presses it tenderly to his lips and she is just (laughs) beside herself laughing at this joke right and and meanwhile sister widow is already up and remarried in tennessee um so so it's it's a lot of dark and sad and crying but there are there are some other moments in there too (laughs) there are there have to be obviously now after the war, the widowhood obviously doesn't end, and, and now you've got this core of women in the Confederacy who, unlike widows in the North, don't have a federal pension coming in, uh, don't have any way to support themselves. And you you point out that they use their widow status in their their ads for, for uh, to sell things or to seek for work or, or housing. Uh, they they play it up, and you also point out some some of them uh, at least not not a lot, but some cheat, some some use this to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me of the people we see, you know, by the side of the road with with quite elaborate lettered signs about their unemployment status, and I'm sure many of them are needy and deserving, but I, I some of them are not. Some of them are just. Uh, playing on our heartstrings to to get money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So this shows up in the newspapers. There are warnings that are placed um, about mm-hmm. female swindlers, right? Women who 
claim that they have been widowed and that they are financially destitute and want typically um, money. And when pressed upon this or offered, you know, trying offered a job or trying to get more information, then the story gets murkier. And so some of this <clears throat> shows up in the paper as a warning about the schemes, which which I think are are fascinating in themselves, but then also show the role that widows have and and some do in in newspaper advertisements for jobs and for um room and board um are saying i you know i am the wife of so-and-so or i am a confederate widow um in, in order to try to make their appeal heard at a time when many people across the confederacy are financially struggling now you said something in, in our previous segment I want to come back to uh, before we run out of time, certainly, which is that you found in the memorialization of the Confederacy, the, the Ladies' Memorial Associations, the LMAs, uh, which eventually become the United Daughters of the Confederacy or relate to them at least, you, you said widows are not the prime movers of this, these organizations. So, so there certainly are, there are some, right? Some very mm -hmm. elite wives of officers are going to play leading roles in that. But majority or many of the widows of, of privates, those that are struggling financially, do not seem, at least based on the, the look that I had, um, mm -hmm. don't, don't seem to be particularly involved and in fact there are even articles and i and i cite them in the book of their friends their colleagues men who fought with their husband who say things like stop building these monuments that women need money in uh widows homes like widow and orphan homes that are being built across the south after the war um that that is where money should go because at one point they even say something about, you know, the dead sleep well and the grave will grow no colder, but the widows are the ones who need support. Um, and in a sense, they already have a grave to decorate. They don't have a true need to decorate other graves in the way that intact families um, who are involved in some of these projects are. So, so the, as the lost cause takes root in the immediate aftermath of the war, uh, widows are not are, are not in the forefront of that movement. They, if anything, they're they're the they're not asking for another monument. They want to, they're the ones who need support. Yes. So so many of them are are, are struggling, and there are these heartbreaking stories. Um, one widow, for example, is is working, and her sons go um, swimming while she is at work, and then they both drown. Right. And so uh. so just tragedy after tragedy, and so. Um, for for many, they're not. Of course, you know there are always some exceptions. The big one I I like to talk about is mm -hmm. Emily Todd Helm, little sister of Mary mm -hmm. Todd Lincoln. She is someone who does exactly what the former Confederacy would have wanted. She is a widow with a capital W. She wears mm -hmm. black for the rest of her life. She does champion the lost cause. She is. Um, constantly traveling and speaking at veterans reunions, speaking about her husband, about the Confederacy, writing, um, and even involved in textbooks, writing and creating the textbooks of how she feels the story of the Civil War should be told. So there are examples of some elite widows who take this role, but I went through many of the rosters in Virginia, um, and the majority of them do not seem to be filled with widows, but with other women. Uh, it, it, em, Emily Helm is, is a, a fascinating case, and you write about her in several chapters. She's mm -hmm. you know, Mar Mary Todd Lincoln's uh, sister, uh, but also uh, the wife of Benjamin Hardin mm -hmm. Helm, the Confederate general who was killed. And she goes to the White House, and, and Abraham Lincoln and Mary host her after the death of General Helm, which is, is one of those things that makes the war so distant from us today, the idea of uh, an, an enemy combatant's mm. spouse living in the White House uh, is hard to, to picture. Absolutely. Yes, her, her records, I mean, 
she's a Todd, right? So she has mm-hmm. a sharp tongue and a, and a wit, <laughs> like most yes. Todds do. And for me, that story, you know, when Lincoln talks about this being a war of brother versus brother, it, this story is a powerful reminder that he's literally thinking about his in-laws. I mean, mm-hmm. before the war, he was particularly affectionate and saw Emily as a little sister. She writes this whole story about the first time she met him as a child, because there is there is an age gap between her and Mary. And mm-hmm. she refers to him as being like Jack in the beanstalk, right? And marching <laughs> in. And she expects him to say, fee, fi, fo, fum. But instead, he lifts her up and says, this is little sister. And so mm. there is that emotion there that the war is going to to destroy. And so they're in the White House. Fast forward to the war. She's lost her husband. She's refusing to swear an oath of loyalty. She and Mary are both grieving um, in, in their own way. But Emily also writes that the war comes between them like a wall of granite, that there are these mm. political divisions, too, uh, that are both human um, and emotional but also insurmountable in some ways. Yeah, it, it is it really tragic, and, mm-hmm. and to to picture the, this family that you know can can help one another yet yet are divided in this way. Uh, the name Scarlett O'Hara has come up several times, <laughs> and as we just have a minute left, but she might be the most famous fictional widow of the mm-hmm. Civil War. Um, does she represent what most people today imagine? the civil war widow to be <laughs> i think so when i when i search you know you put into your your search engine confederate widow either scarlett mm-hmm. o'hara is going to pop up or the oldest living confederate widow is going to be your first uh, hit um mm. again morning is a spectrum and so there are a few examples of the scarlett o'hara type who are flirting their way um across the south but for the most part no, I would I would say mm. she's not represented. <laughs> so with with just a minute left, I will often ask guests uh, if they could go on the Civil War time machine and meet one person from the era for 30 minutes. Who would it be? Let me focus that for you. Of all the people you met through this book, through their letters, uh, which is the one where you just wish there were one more letter to oh. finish the story? Yes, I think I will. I will go back to where I started with Rosa Deloney, since she's the one who started this project for me. Mm-hmm. After her husband dies, I don't have nearly as much as I would like of her thoughts and her emotion. We know her husband dies; she has this baby. The baby dies; they're buried side by side in the cemetery today. And I, I would love to hear more from her. Well, listeners, you will get to hear more from a lot of these people when you read this book, Love and Duty, Confederate Widows and the Emotional Politics of Loss. It's written by our guest tonight, Angela Esco Elder. Angela, a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for coming to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, tonight for the last 20 years, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.